So why Genesis 22? Well, to me, it, it has a beautiful conveyance of the gospel buried in it. Here we are in the Old Testament. We're actually in the first book of the Bible. And in, in my mind, in a really neat way, you see, you see the gospel unfolded. So if you would go back to Genesis 22 and just the very first words of, of our passage for today says after these things and when I read after these things it reminds us to keep in mind the context and so as I think in the sermon outline the first part is context and I'll ask well, what, what do we know about what do we know about Abraham well Abraham is first introduced to us back in Genesis 11 right at the end of it is actually at that point his name is Abram and he along with uh well, I'll just read the end of Genesis 11:31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And so now we get to the, the part about Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old. So, it, why, why is this super great blessing, this promise, come to Abram? What's so special about Abram? Well, Scripture doesn't really give any indication, quite frankly. Is he more handsome, more wealthy, smarter, more holy, more noble, more kind? We aren't given any of that. We just know that God shows up to Abram, and he comes with this great promise. And ho hopefully I'll connect the dots. Why am I spending time on this? This promise, he says, verse 2, I will make of you a great nation. So Abram is given this promise that he is going to have, presumably, descendants. I should mention Abram even in, is, a, is, a, is a giant in the, in the Jewish faith. Even in the time of Christ, uh, the Pharisees thought of Abram as their, Abraham at that point, as their father. But he is a big deal guy. James twenty uh, James 2.23 describes Abraham as a friend of God. Boy, how's that? That's pretty special. Be known as a friend of God. So he gets this promise that he's going to be made a great nation. If you flip over a couple chapters to 15... Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Recall, in 12, God said he's going to be a great nation. Here we are sometime later, and he still has no children. And Abram's guessing that maybe one of his servants is going to wind up being his descendant. 
Verse 3, Abram says, And behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here it's added on. Not 12, he's told he's to be a great nation. Here at 15, it's to be your very own son. Even though at this point he has no children. Have you ever had to wait on the Lord? It seems to be a common way of the Lord is to make his people wait. Well, in verse, uh, in chapter 16, Abram and Sarai get this great idea that they're going to help the Lord. And this is where Sarai gives Hagar to Abram. And through Hagar, Abram has Ishmael. Well, that's not quite what the Lord had intended. So if we get to over to chapter 17. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, and back, you know, in chapter 12, he was 75, so already he's been waiting quite a while. Waiting on the Lord. Boy, that just seems like a, something God's people need to get their minds wrapped around. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And if you jump down to, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So before, in chapter 12, he was told he's going to be the father of a great nation. Here, it's, he's up the ante to a multitude of nations. Yet he still has no child. Still has no child. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And so, so again, 24 years later, if I'm doing my math right, God hasn't provided a child. He's still waiting. But while he's still waiting, he ups it from a, of a nation to many nations. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. Then in Genesis 18, God is more specific and says, the child will come through Sarai. Not through, not through Hagar, it's not Ishmael. The promise runs through Sarai. And so he again says that he's going to bear a son. Flip over to 21 and we get to kind of this climactic moment. He's been waiting for decades and the promise has only gotten grander. He's still waiting, but we get to 21. The Lord visited Sarah. And by the way, in the meantime, he changes their names from Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. The Lord visits Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. God called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah born to him, Isaac. And so here it is, after these decades of waiting, God keeps his promise. He gets the son. It's going to be the father of many nations. It's awesome. It's the climactic moment. 
And that takes us then, sets the stage, that's the context for 22. Just when, just as things were all came together after years of waiting, the sun has come, but then there's chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. Let me pause there and just say, it's noteworthy that it says God tested Abraham. And sometimes I think, at least I myself, you can get confused between test and tempt. God doesn't tempt. Actually, in James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. God doesn't lure you. God doesn't entice you to sin. But he can put in front of you a test. In this case, Abraham is getting a test. He's not luring him into sin, but he's giving him a test. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Verse 2. I mean, just try and think about it and absorb verse 2. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac. I'm not talking about Ishmael. Not that guy. I'm talking about the one I promised. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, the promised one, the one you waited 25 years for, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. What? What? That, that doesn't sound right. Go sacrifice your son. God, you promised, you promised to make me a, a father of many nations. And, and you gave my elderly wife this miraculous son after all these years, and now you're telling me to go kill him? That, that doesn't sound right. Something is off. This makes no sense. I can only imagine he's sick in his stomach. I, I would have to be, right? Kill your son? Like, what? Has God ever demanded of you something that you hold precious? I don't know, your reputation, money, health, relationships? I can only, I can only imagine in some fractional way, not the killing of your son, but in some fractional way, the Lord has taken something that you held precious. Imagine you can sort of get a flavor of what must be going in, in Abraham's mind and in his, in his belly. Back to the text. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I, should I shall tell you. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. It's probably always dangerous to speculate with, with the text, but I, I, I'll, take a, I'll take the danger. I can only imagine he can't sleep. I'm thinking, oh, why is he rising early in the morning? Like, can't wait to obey God. That's going to be great. But imagine he probably can't sleep. Probably sick in his stomach. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He's going to obey. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. He's going, he's going forward. Man. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. So he, he's getting close. In verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
The wording there at the end of verse 5 is a little bit interesting. Here he tells these, these servants, these young men, the boy and I are going to go worship, and then what it says in the ESV at least is, and come again to you. Now, of course, if he's going to kill his son, how's that going to work? How's that going to work? That sounds pretty uh, kind of confusing. What's he really thinking there? Does, he, does Abraham know what's going to go on? It's not clear to me, though we get a hint in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19 tells us that Abraham was convinced that God could and would bring his son back from dead in order to fulfill his promises. So Abraham had an amazing faith. If necessary, I know God's going to keep his promise. If God's telling me to keep kill my son, apparently that means he's going to bring him back from that's what Abraham, according to Hebrews 11, was, was thinking about. Going on to verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. Just a thought there. You, you see kind of these hints of foreshadowing. Of course, your mind, at least my mind can't help but think about Christ putting the cross on his back and heading to Calvary. These hints of foreshadowing. That's what is so lovely about Scripture is that you know it's not like accidental, right? That this is all one story. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took the hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac, Isaac apparently has some amount of education. That he understands that if you're going to do a sacrifice, we need something to kill. Where's that at, Father? I don't see that. I see the, see the knife. We've got the fire. We've got some wood. Dad, what are we going to kill? Hebrews 9.22 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that takes us to, to, in my mind, the key verse, or at least that which I chose to, to center on. Abraham says to, to, to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. I love that so much. To me, that's the, that's the essence of the gospel in some uh, obscure Old Testament Genesis verse, God will provide for himself the lamb. Now in this immediate context, I don't know exactly what Abraham is thinking. I kind of doubt that he has this idea that we're going to find a ram with its horns caught in a thicket. Maybe he had that premonition. I doubt that. But it seems like he knows that if we got any hope, if we have any chance, God's going to have to come through. God's going to have to provide it for us because we're in a pickle. But I know that God himself is going to provide the lamb, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Before, before I leave verse 8, I, I just want to, and I'll probably hit on this several times, 
that idea that God will provide for himself the lamb, I want you to know, you don't have to... I think oftentimes Christians feel, or people when they encounter Christianity, feel like I have to clean myself up to be good enough for God. I have, I have to get my act together to be ready for God. And that certainly isn't the case, and in fact can't be done, and you shouldn't even really try. What you need to understand and embrace is that God provides for you. All that you need, God is providing for you. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told them, and I, at this point i got to take a little rabbit trail. Where, where are they at? Where are they exactly? Well, verse 2, it said that he told them to go to the land of Moriah. And I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, if you've heard that the word Moriah before, but something I think is super cool is that in 2 Chronicles 3.1, and this is where Solomon is about to build the temple, you know, the temple where God meets with his people, the Holy of Holies, all the gold and decoration, and they bring the lambs, and this exalted place of where the sacrifice is, and God meets with his people. In 2 Chronicles 3, 1, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It's the exact same place. It's not some random place. God, you know, in the text, it wasn't, back in Genesis, it's not clear. It's like, God says, I'll show you some place. It's not just some place. It's the exact same place where the temple itself was going to be built centuries later. That's really cool. To me, it, it gives great confidence in God's word that this isn't just something that's kind of tossed together. This is one cohesive story through centuries, through millennia. And it gives me confidence that God's word is true. But back to verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son. Wow. Wow. I'm just gonna, I can only imagine what it would be like to imagine he's wrapping rope around his legs probably, maybe around his arms. He's really going to go through with this. And he's got to be thinking, what am I doing? This doesn't make sense. What about your promises to make me into a great nation? I love this boy. What are you doing, God? You ever thought that? What are you doing, God? This doesn't seem right at all. I, I'm going to guess that probably each of you had that thought cross your mind. What are you doing? But Abraham moves forward in obedience. He's going to do it. He's going to obey. The other thing I think it's worth noting is there's no indication that Isaac is resisting. Now, maybe it's just not recorded, but it's not here at all. Isaac must, it seems to be fully cooperating. And bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It makes my mind go to, as, as we see here, I think it's fair and accurate to say Isaac is a type of Christ. Or a foreshadowing of Christ. It reminds me of Luke 22, 42, where, where Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Isaac, like Christ, is cooperating with the Father's plan. 
Then we get to this climactic moment, verse 10. As awful and painful as God's instructions to Abraham are, he's going to go, go through with it. He chooses to obey despite the confusion. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son. And we, we pause at that climactic moment. And, and at that point, as according to your, uh, your sermon notes, transition for a moment. We covered earlier the context of his promise to become a great nation and how he waited and waited and waited and finally God came through. And then we saw just now this awful test that God's put before him, Abraham subjected to, how God instructed him to sacrifice his own son. And we heard Abraham's statement to Isaac that God himself would provide a lamb. But the question that I want to focus on for this little moment is, what is God requiring of you? So God, God required of Abraham this test. God, for a sacrifice, you're required to have something to sacrifice. What is God requiring of you? Earlier in our reading of the law, that was chosen on purpose, it's a, reading, it's a portion of scripture that's always jumped out at me. Kyle read it earlier back in the reading of the law from Matthew 5, where we're instructed to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute you, some really hard things to do like that. And then, and then Jesus ends with, you therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How are you doing at being perfect? I mean, I think to most of our American ears, that doesn't even really sound right or sound realistic or God must be God must be using hyperbole probably no no that's actually the requirement God has for you for me for us is perfection and I just think to our American ears it's like wow that doesn't sound right well I mean I'm a pretty good I'm a pretty good guy I'm a pretty good guy well the, the measurement isn't being a pretty good guy it's perfect not pretty good, it's perfect. I'm better than my neighbor, you're probably thinking. But God doesn't evaluate us compared to others. He evaluates compared to his own perfect character. And I got bad news for you. Compared to God's perfect character, you're not doing well at all. You're doing pretty, pretty poorly. Why does God have that standard? It comes from his holy character, it's who he is. He is perfect. He is pure. 100% all the time. He is always good, always beautiful, always loving. He's, he is perfect. It is also, just another side note, is in the Old Testament, when they brought forward a lamb to be sacrificed, they were instructed very clearly. Here's an, an, an example. It's numerous. Exodus 12, 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Had to be a perfect lamb. Also, just... Side note, the, the priests that came into the temple, they couldn't have any disfigurement. They had to be perfect, and at least even physical perfection. God didn't want any imperfections. God's perfection is critical. So if the requirement is that you be perfect, love God with all your heart, all your mind, or love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, 
How are you doing with that? How are you doing with that requirement? Hold that thought. We're back to the text, verse 11. We're at this climactic moment. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham passes the test. He passes in verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his, by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh. And it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That, that, that's full of meaning all by itself right there. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So earlier I asked you, how are you doing at meeting God's requirement to be perfect? And I suspect, you know, though I don't know many of you, I know for certain none of us is perfect. And you might be thinking, nobody's perfect, Todd. But that, that's close, but not quite right. There was one who was perfect. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was without sin. In John 1.29, it explains that Jesus is the Lamb of God that God provides for a sacrifice. See it coming together here? God provides a lamb. Hebrews 4.15 tells him that he is perfect. He is without blemish. As Abraham foretold in Genesis 22.8, God will provide for himself the lamb. Jesus is that lamb. We also know that to come to salvation, you need to have faith. Faith in Christ. But even there, where or how do you get that needed faith? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even the faith that you are required to have is provided by God. The faith comes from God, the perfection comes from God. Here's the point. It all comes from God. And that is really the essence of the good news. That is, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the good news. God will provide for himself the lamb. When you put your faith in Christ, your sin is transferred to Jesus' account. He pays for it on the cross. But here's something we don't talk about quite as much, but also critically important. Christ's perfection is transferred to your account. Your sin goes to him, but his perfection comes to you. And so when, when God looks at you, he sees perfection. Not your perfection, but the perfection of his son. In your eyes, if you're a follower of Christ, you're not the messed up human being that we see here. He sees perfection. And he loves it. Maximally loves it. He loves the perfection of his son covering you. In Christ, you meet the requirement of perfection that we read about. 
He does all the work. He provides the perfection. He even provides the faith. You don't have to clean yourself up. You can't. You don't have to be good enough. You can't. Our gracious God does it all for his children. All you have to do is repent and believe. Abraham's words were packed with meaning, meaning critically important for us. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Abraham was allowed to spare his son. God the Father did not. And that's what all of our faith is built upon. Your sins paid for, your adoption into God's family, because Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is that sacrificial lamb. When Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb, that is Jesus. He's already done all the work. You don't have to do any of the work. Put your trust in Christ. Now, from an application perspective, what does this... How does this apply to you? What does it mean to you? What does it mean for you? And as I thought about that, I put it into two categories. For anyone here who is not a believer in Christ, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in this finished work, I would only urge you to consider what you've heard and think about our, what are you going to do with this requirement of perfection? You know you'll never achieve that. Hell is a real place. I warn you, you don't want to go there. It's the, it's a real thing, and you don't want to go there. The only solution is to see the beauty of what Jesus has already done for you. Put, put your faith in Christ. Now, for my brothers and sisters who are Christians, you already know the goodness, the graciousness of Jesus towards you. For you... As I try to think about how to, how to apply this, the first thing that comes into my mind is when you, it reminds me that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Jesus providing all you need for you to cover your imperfections with his perfections, my mind goes to, it's like seeing the Grand Canyon or seeing the Milky Way or seeing some spectacularly glorious thing. When you see the Grand Canyon, you don't, you don't first ask, how do I apply this? You just, you delight in it, you soak in it, you, you're amazed at it, the beauty, the awesomeness of it. And I encourage you, soak in, marinate in the, in, the, in the awesomeness of what God has already done for you. Enjoy it, delight in it, delight in the Lord. But then, like any time you, I can imagine you have these examples when something you, if you've seen the Milky Way or you've seen the Grand Canyon, you want to tell people about it. Boy, I saw, you know, last night I was looking up into the sky and I saw the Milky Way. It was just amazing. You want to tell people about this beautiful, awesome thing that you've seen, you've experienced. You feel compelled to tell others. And I, that would be the, the application is be compelled to tell people. They don't have to clean themselves up to come to God. God's done all the work. He provides. Tell them all they need to do is repent and believe. Father God, we are amazed that you would reach out to sinful people like ourselves. And Lord Jesus, oh Lord, you came to rescue us, sinners. 
messed up, rebellious people like us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your graciousness. Father, would you help our hearts never to grow dull of hearing the good news. Help us to remain amazed at your provision. And Lord, would it be natural to share this joy, this, this goodness with those who are still perishing around us. We pray that as a church we would be effective in making disciples. We know we can only do that through the Holy Spirit's movement, so we ask for the Holy Spirit's movement. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.